This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we talk everything wildlife. I wanted to first apologize. I know I try and post every single Monday. I have missed the last few Mondays. It's been a bit of a crazy schedule uh, between work and travel and all this stuff going on. So from now on out, it should be every single Monday going forward. I appreciate your patience and sticking with me. Uh, Today's guest is a very exciting one. Daisy Gillardini is a photographer and conservationist specialized in the polar regions and North American bears. Her images have been published internationally by groups like National Geographic, Smithsonian, BBC Wildlife, and many, many, many others. She is a Canadian Geographic photographer in residence. She's a member of the International League of Conservation Photographers, a fellow of the prestigious Explorer Club, part of the Swiss Nikon Ambassadors team, the SanDisk Extreme team, the Low Pro Storytellers team, and the Sea Legacy Collective. Uh, I mean, what else can you say? She's a powerhouse. Uh, It was a really interesting conversation. We talk a lot about her travels to the polar regions, what it takes to become a wildlife photographer, uh, what we're up against in terms of climate change and biodiversity, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with the one and only Daisy Gillardini. Well, Daisy, thanks so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. I am a huge fan of your work uh, and have been for a really long time. And I'm so excited that we were able to make this happen, especially since I had to cancel yesterday because I got altitude sickness in Denver. Um, but I, I watched a talk that you gave at the Annenberg Center for Photography And I wanted just to start with your background a little bit because I thought it was really interesting that it all started with a stuffed seal. So can we talk a little (laughs) bit about what I mean by that and and kind of take it from there? Yeah, so yeah, my love really for for the polar regions because that's what I do, that's my specialty. I do uh, polar region bears and polar region. Uh, Started when I was only four years old and uh, my godparents got me a little uh, stuffed seal like a toy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my mom would tell me stories about the seals that was living on and under the polar ice. And for me, you know, at four years old, it was super fascinating. Mm. And uh, and I still have that seal. It's in my, in my room, in my bedroom. And quite wow. often I take it on tour when I do the talks because, you know, it's, it's, it's my seal. <laughs> so <laughs> That's amazing. It's, it's, it's the cause of all my career, right? So... So the inspiration, if you want, and um, and so I grew up with the idea I would become a vet because you know I love the animal. I grew up in in a little village in the Swiss in Switzerland in the Swiss Italian part, and um, and I always thought about the you know I, I would work with animals, but then things in life don't go out the way you plan it, and I ended up to become a Swiss expert in finance and accounting. Mm. And I opened up my accounting business, and uh, but I still had the desire to see the seals. And so in 1997, after actually saving my money for seven years, 
I finally was able to embark on an expedition to Antarctica and see the seals. And that's how everything started. It's funny. I, I had a collection of stuffed animals just because I le- I don't know why, but just over the course of my life, I collected like bears and seals and whales up until the time I was 25. And then I met my girlfriend and she came over my house one day and was like, what is going on with the 25 stuffed animals that are going <laughs> on your bed? And I was like, uh, I don't know. It's just, that's who I am. But long story short, that after dating for a few years, those eventually slowly started making their way into the closet and, and no longer in my room. Um, I still have in my room all uh, the collection. Yeah, I have so just, we, the, just the thing for my stuffed animal. <laughs> <laughs> We've nailed it down to now we have a, a bunny rabbit and a sloth. So I was able to keep two of them, but I had to put the other 18 into the closet so people didn't think I was weird. <laughs> so... I think that's really interesting because I I drew a lot of parallels to my own story where I grew up and I would summer every summer on Cape Cod uh, in Falmouth specifically. And one of the villages in Falmouth is Woods Hole and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute is like the mecca of marine biology. So when I was a kid, I had like the, the whale stuffed animal. I always wanted to be a marine biologist. Long story short, you go to college. I ended up in finance and... (laughs) <laughs> and then oh, slowly but surely found my way over here, which is just really funny that, that the parallel. So when you were doing accounting in Switzerland, was it something that you always knew I had this side project that I want to become my full career? Or was it something where you started making some money in finance and accounting, went on a trip to the Antarctic, and then were like, oh, shit, this is something and I might be able well, to, to turn this into you know, it. I think it's it started with travels and so the love of animals always been there, uh, but I, I, I even work for a summer in a zoo, uh, oh, okay. the zookeeper, right? Uh, because I wanted just in between the studies of accounting, uh, but um, I, I love the animals, so so I had to find something. But of course, you know, you grow up in Switzerland, and everything turns around finances in Switzerland, and. I, you know, I'm pretty good with numbers, which yeah. is good. <laughs> and uh, and I ended up doing that. And I really don't have any regrets, to be honest, because it really uh, taught me discipline and, and good management. Uh, and that's probably why I can make a living now with my photography because of my background, because I, I make choices not only by following really my art, but also, you know, conscience, financial choices that always helps if you want to be successful in something right and um and so the accounting business actually gave me uh the finances to be able to travel and then start traveling say well okay i didn't become a vet but i can still do something for for the animals and so i start you know traveling more and more. So I had my, my accounting, my, my office, and then I would take off for one month and then two months and then three months and then four months. And then of course I had to hire people to work in the office while yeah. I was having, having my trips. And, and then, and then people would just say, why don't you, you know, try to do something? And I'm like, yeah, I like to write. So I started writing article and then submitting to magazine. And then I say, you know, I have a voice. I can say things to people because, you know, my images will catch the attention. Right. And then and then through through the images, I can say something useful, right? And so it become more and more. 
And then I realized, yeah, that's what I want to do. Uh, the transition wasn't fast at all. I, I took a long period of just traveling, uh, getting uh, the base, if you want, of a solid photographic business before I did the leap and, and say, okay, uh, I'm going to try. And, you know, before I actually quit my day job, if you want, I, um, I already had a contract with Getty Images. And, uh, and when I signed the contract, I said, okay, if Getty Images wants my images, means the quality is up there. Mm-hmm. So I maybe start thinking that I have the, you know, the technicality that needed to be a professional. And so that was 2005. And in 2006, I sold the business and now I have some saving. And I'd say to myself, I'm going to take two sabbatical mm-hmm. and give it a try. Just, just try. If I go bankrupt, I go back to accounting. And if not, uh, I will continue. And I haven't touched my saving ever since. So I'm still doing it. I'm loving love it. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And I, I think for me, I went to college to for entrepreneurship and finance. And my dream was always to kind of follow my passion, build a business around my passion. And I think, unfortunately, it gets twisted a little bit um, for kids who are growing up and going into high school and going into college that if you take a nine to five, it's almost like giving up on your dreams sometimes. And I think in reality, the more and more I meet people who have reached your status doing things that are so focused on their passion, it's oftentimes a long journey where you need to be able to give yourself the opportunity to grow into that passion job. And I took a very similar approach. I mean, I worked in finance and sales and up until about two and a half years ago, and I would was just miserable at my job. And I was like, this isn't what I want to do. And I was lucky enough that I had put aside a little bit of money through that, that job that I was like, I'm just going to take a little bit of time to figure it out. And I decided I wanted to go and film an endangered species. And so I was Googling online and I was like, what endangered species could I actually realistically not spend six months in the rainforest trying to find or spend a ton of money trying to get out there to and I learned about the Hawaiian monk seal, which is uh, one of the most critically endangered marine mammals in the world. But at the same time, it's kind of a chubby thing that lies on the beach all day. I was like, I could probably go to Hawaii and find one of these and film them. And I made a relationship with a guy who runs a nonprofit who helps to protect them. And I said, hey, if you bring me around on your jet skis and we can find the Hawaiian monk seal, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make a video for you to help to promote your nonprofit. And just through that, we built a relationship and I started asking him questions about why the seals were struggling so bad. And sure enough, he told me this crazy weird story about all these feral cats on Hawaii and they're spreading a parasite in their feces that gets washed in the ocean called toxoplasma. It's starting to kill critically endangered monk seals. And that's one piece of why they're struggling. But long story short, it it brought me down this huge rabbit hole about seals and critically endangered birds and feral cats in Hawaii. And then I was like, well, this is interesting. And just because I had worked for five years leading up to that, I was like, instead of taking this money and investing in a condo or doing something like that, I'm just going to make a documentary on this and hope for the best. And sure enough, like it's about to come, I'm about to finish it this week. It's been 18 months or something like that. But the only reason I'm able to do that is because I spent five years doing something that I didn't particularly enjoy. And I think oftentimes people would view that as failure in like terms of giving up on your dreams. But in reality, it was really just a necessary step. As long as that North star is always there and you're kind of going towards that North star, 
oftentimes it's, it's not a straight line as to <laughs> going towards it. it so. You know, the, the, the fact is that we have to take decision when we are so young. I mean, at 14, 16 years old, what do you what do you know about yourself? You don't know anything, right? right. So so you just say, well, whatever, you know, everybody's do that. I, I do that again. And then, and then, and then, and then finally you find your passion. And I think the problem for a lot of our youth is that they, they absolutely don't know who they are and what they want. Right. But once you find it, that is super easy. You know, once I, I, I found like, okay, this is what I want to do. Then, you know, taking the decision and say, yeah, I'm going to do it. And I'm not going to look back and I just give it a try. Then it was so easy. Then everything comes to place because you put so much passion. And, you know, in, in life, I always have what I call the rule of the three P which is passion, patience, and perseverance. Mm-hmm. So if you apply that to whatever you love, I'm, I'm really convinced you, 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 you'll be successful. I it, totally, no totally, totally agree. And that doesn't mean that you spend 100% of your time doing that. It means that in the back of your mind, that's always where you're going. And everything yeah. you're doing is the underpinning to enable that to eventually happen. And I think you're spot exactly. on. I don't know exactly what it's like in Switzerland, but... Here, the difficulty is I remember my dad coming to me and I was 18 or 17. I was about to graduate high school. He's like, hey, so what do you want to major in in college? I'm like, I don't know. And I looked at it as like, I don't want to be a doctor. I don't want to be a lawyer. Like I pass out if I see blood. I don't really enjoy reading. (laughs) So I don't want to do any of those things. So I was like, well, I would like to make some money. I was like, I'll just go into business. And then sure enough, like that basically put... Uh, here it's like $40,000 a year to go to school and you're doing something that you're like, I don't even know if this is necessarily what I want to be doing. And all of a sudden you have these 22 year old kids who like had to make a decision when they're 18 now have a quarter million dollars of debt. And you're like, Oh, well, okay. But now I know what my passion is, but I still have to figure it out. And I love the college experience and it was totally worth it. But I think there is that pressure for people to try and figure out what they're doing when they're between 16 and 18 that's totally unfair um and also the stigma attached with like taking some time to figure it out and not necessarily going to college or like just trying to take some time to figure out what you actually want to be doing it's just like an unfortunate thing that we put on kids yeah absolutely yeah but anyways not to make this about the whole education system (laughs) (laughs) what so once you started getting into this, what was it about the polar region specifically as, as somebody who loves animals, loves seals, which you can find everywhere in the world? What, what is it that drove you to the polar regions? Well, so, of course, the seals was the, you know, the inspiration. Go to see the seals. Mm-hmm. But once I got there, I totally fell in love with Antarctica. I mean, I was just and to me, I. When you know it's very difficult to describe Antarctica to someone that never been there because there is no picture that gives justice, no picture that that can tell you, and you have to leave Antarctica in order to really understand what it is. Mm-hmm. And and I think the best way I can describe is like I feel like Antarctica is a planet on our planet. It's like creation happened, yeah. and then everything stopped. You know, there is no human being living there. That's huge. The scientists, right? That that you know, some scientists stay over winter, but but the fact that there is no human activities in the sense that 
living cities and polluting and stuff like that makes this just a unique place on earth, like really unique. In the Arctic, you have the Inuit, you have, you know, the indigenous people living there. So it's a totally different vibe. But Antarctica Mm -hmm. being so isolated is just, and when people ask me, you know, you're going to Antarctica and I always say, well, you know, you, you, you are, you depart usually from South America Mm -hmm. and that's hell. And then you have to, to cross the drape. That's the purgatory. And then you get to paradise. It's, it's a real paradise. And the drape passage, you know, nowadays some companies offered to fly uh, to Antarctica instead of doing the drake passage, which is yeah, two days, two good days of crossing. It can be really wild. can be, I mean, if you're seasick, it, it can be treacherous. Yeah. But you have to go through that period of detachment from civilization and to prepare you for heaven it's just like so uh, unique and the fact that there is no phone there is no tv there's no radio there is nothing you you totally cut off and for me this is so precious nowadays it's i think it's one of the very few places where i go and i live the present there is mm-hmm. no distraction. I am in the present. I live and breathe the present without thinking about pays to bills or deadlines or computer or social media or nothing. I'm in the present. I wake up, look out of the, my portal and this beautiful iceberg. And then uh. you just dress and go out and breathe, you know, the freshness of the the, the cold and, and it's just like so refreshing for your brain yeah. because at home, even without thinking, you are bombarded with negative energy. Mm-hmm. You switch on the TV, the news, well, it's depressing. Like, yeah. You switch on the radio, well, there is always news, so there is always bad news going on, so it's depressing. And so even if you want to protect yourself, it's difficult. Because you have all this external element that comes to you, even without you wanting it, mm-hmm. and and maybe in a not in a conscious way, but is an unconscious way, it gets under your skin. Well, down there, there's nothing about that. There's yeah. no no news, no TV, no no newspaper, no nothing. So you can really be in a bubble, and just leave the present there. And the present there is amazing. It's just so beautiful. It's so powerful. And I think it's like a, a it's like a, really a, a break from everything. And that really gives me so much energy. Even if I work like 20 hours a day, yeah. I, I'm just so energized about all the beauty that is around me that it's so refreshing. It's just beautiful. I love that. And it's also an interesting thought that, with the Drake passage, you almost are, you have to earn the right to be able to disconnect so strongly from this world. Like I've seen some of those videos of, uh, we had Dan Westergren, you know, Dan Westergren. Um, he was a former director of photography at Nat Geo magazine. Uh, he has this video on his website of passing the Drake passage. That's like, I get seasick even watching the video. So, <laughs> and here yeah. I am, I get altitude sickness by going to Denver. So clearly I don't have a strong <laughs> fortitude. Um, but it, it is cool to think of that disconnection. We talk about that a lot on the podcast where I struggle with that a ton. I live in Los Angeles. I'm obsessive about natural world and, and wildlife. And 
yet I live in the most urban environment in the world. And just from sheer necessity, I've had to, I've deleted my Facebook. Um, I no longer consume Instagram. I just push out to Instagram. Um, I've never really been into Twitter. I like, I follow them because like for advertising purposes and like trying to build the podcast, it's important to like have a presence out there. I just can't interact with it because I become too, uh, stressed out. I think that the biggest thing for me was I once forgot my phone when I was waiting in line for coffee and there was maybe two to three people in front of me in line. And I was so uncomfortable and anxious because I had nothing to look at that. I was like, this is unhealthy. I can't handle this. Yeah. But, you know, there is pro and cons like uh, and it just right now, you know, you have the, the, the alarm on the phone that comes up. And and I was just uh, have this app that tells you how much time you spend on your phone. And it just came out Sunday today. right? Yeah. And it comes out and say last year you spent an average of two hours a day in front of the phone. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah. This is now two hours a day as an average. This is monstrous. What are you doing? This yeah. is insane, right? And and then of course you do not realize because you do it when you have these dead moments, like you are on a line in the coffee shop and you just scroll and see what's going on. Yeah. So that's the the bad side. In the other hand, I think that this technology, Instagram, the platform, the connectivity among billions of people. Mm-hmm. Give us, as conservation photographers and scientists in general, give us a platform uh, that is super powerful. Like mm-hmm. we can reach in a, in a fraction of a second, we can reach literally hundreds of millions of people. Sure. That we can influence, we can you know educate. That that was never before in history. We never had that such a powerful means of communication. And with images as well. Image image is, I think, the most powerful tools that we have in communication. Because no matter, you know, no matter the religion, the culture, no matter the age, no matter the level of education, a picture talks to you, right? Mm-hmm. Reach your heart, where it's positive or negative, is going to move your feelings and your emotion. And that's so powerful. And the message, if you if you use it, in a good way, you can reach people's art with strong messages and you can move them to action. I agree entirely. Yeah. That that is so powerful. So there is a lot of negative, like two hours a day on the phone, (laughs) outrageous. But in in the other hand, it is important. And, you know, I'm happy when I'm in, you know, I'm in Antarctica and I I, I don't have, I don't have connections, so I cannot look at Instagram and what's going on, but have people at home taking the time to post on my Instagram because mm-hmm. I still want to get my daily dose of education, whatever species I'm posting or whatever problem or issue or, you know, endangered species I'm talking about. I want to, people to read it and I want them to read through my images. And I'm totally surprised how many people actually read the captions. Yeah. You know, first, you know, I remember like, I don't know when I started social media, I would just post nice images and say, okay, this is a polar bear. Of course it's a polar bear. It's a picture. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, you start realizing that, well, you have a super powerful means of education here. So tools. Mm-hmm. So just use it properly. So now I spend hours and hours a week just preparing caption. 
because it's so important for me to, you know, and, and it's really interesting because I have access to platform like National Geographic Travel, National Geographic Wild, like millions of people following right. And it, you know, when they send you the contract, they say, well, if you do not have time to write a caption, do not post. Oh, don't do a post. I love that. Because the caption is important. So either you say something useful and meaningful or please do not post. Yeah, I think and, that's so yeah. important. Yeah, and so it's a, see, it's it's a double it's a double sided thing. It's somehow there is abuse and there is a lot of negative stuff, but there is tons of really positive stuff in social media. I almost think it's like uh, it's really positive from a cultural societal standpoint at scale but it's very dangerous on the individual level. And so it's like this weird balance of how can you keep individuals safe and in consuming this and not overriding their brain while understanding that the value is so tremendous from a societal standpoint and moving moral and cultural values forward. And that's why I get like, I think what's so important that we really need to push on is there's this big um, movement to start addressing Facebook and how, a lot of what they've started to recognize is that people interact a hell of a lot more when it's negative things that they're talking about. And that's why I think there's so much negativity on Facebook because people know that it, it gets the emotions going. They're talking about it a lot. And I think we need to lose sight of the, the business focus of Facebook and the, I mean, obviously this is easier said than done with a company that large, but when you're strictly focused on trying to establish and create a conversation that's largely negative and like politically driven and emotionally driven. Yeah. It takes away from the power that you could be building to foster more positivity in the world and move values forward. And it's, I mean, I think the most difficult task as conservationists that we have ahead of us is I think the best thing we can do for wildlife is to keep pushing towards a more urbanized environment because I think the more we can consolidate humans, take advantage of the economic value of bringing a lot of people together and the efficiencies of bringing people together, you can create more wild spaces and just leave them to be wild. But the difficulty in that is you're inherently disconnecting people from the wild experience. And through doing that, it's really hard for people to be empathetic and care about wild animals and wild places if they're not experiencing them on a day-to-day -day basis. And things mm -hmm. like Instagram and things like Facebook are so powerful in allowing people to be like, oh my God, I can't believe a place like Antarctica even exists. And, yeah, exactly. And, and images like your own that allow people to connect with that. It's just so important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I really, really believe in the sheer power of beautiful images mm -hmm. just to move feelings and move people. Because I think people are going to react and, and do something positive only if you touch the art, you know, only if you move their feelings and, and you know, you, you only if they love what they protect, they're going to protect it. If not, they don't care. Right. So, so we have as, as a, as a, yeah, conservation photographer is really our, our duty. It's the duty to just put out these images and try to, to make, people fall in love with our subjects so that they mm -hmm. care about it. And, you know, unfortunately, like with the, you know, with the UN new report on biodiversity, mm -hmm. you know, one out of eight species are in danger of extinction. 
And I think that we are at a point right now that is no longer, the problem is no longer about protecting species. The problem now is protecting human species. Mm-hmm. That's maybe the clue and the key to make people react now. Because, you know, now we are destroying our environment, our habitat, our habitat, the human species habitat. So that is so inhospitable that we are going to choke on the air we, we're breathing. We are going to be poisoned by the water we're drinking. And so maybe, hopefully, that will make us react and take action. It's really time to stop talking and take action because technology is there. Mm-hmm. We, have, we know the problem. We, we totally know the problem. It's years that we're studying the problem of climate change and, and all of that. It, if, even if you look at the car industry, how many years? I mean, at least 30 years since electric car were, yeah. you know, tested. And we're not there yet. 30 years. Technology is there. 30 years ago, and we haven't done anything. Mm-hmm. Now, slowly. So... The technology is there. The solutions are there. We, we know the solution. Now it's just time to act and put them into action. Just do it. I agree entirely. And I think climate change has been so conceptual for people. And it's almost such a daunting problem that that's what leads to some of the apathy that's happened over the last 30 years. <clears throat> but now I think it's it's come to the forefront so much that you're truly starting to see, oh, wow, visibly these corals are bleaching or visibly Malibu is on fire or visibly like Miami is going underwater that we're like, Oh shit, this is real. And we need to start addressing it. Yeah. And you know, I, the thing is, it's, it's happening now. Yeah. You, you, you switch on the TV and you know, last summer I was like looking at these wildfires here in Canada and California. And I'm like, I'm looking at my husband say, it is happening. It is happening now. We are just witnessing it and nothing is done. Yeah. Or little is done. Yeah. At least like there's two things that I hold on to like great hope about. And one is that technologies are being developed that if they're invested in enough can really help to change this problem. Like things that I forget exactly what the mechanism is, but I was reading the other day about this, um, something they can release into the air that actually goes in and like absorbs the carbon that's being, or not the carbon, the, the methane that's being um, introduced into the air. I know that there's this like weird new study that if you feed cattle, which are like the number one, uh, contributor to methane in the world, that if you feed cattle, this certain type of seaweed, it reduces their methane emissions by like 90%. There's some crazy stuff that's going on that even, um, who's the kid boy, the guy who's doing the big ocean pollution plastic project. That's, uh, Mm -hmm. there's just so many good things going on that hopefully as, as, social media helps to bring these issues to the forefront that this stuff's real and kind of uh, happening all around us that, that things will change for the better. And I think that comes full circle when it comes to talking about the captions and the ability for art to help progress that. I, I think the UN report that you just mentioned where a million species are at risk of extinction is something that's come into popular culture, like that, that really disseminated. I think most people listening have probably heard of that report, but even myself, I haven't fully read the report yet. It's just like daunting to be like, Oh, I have to read something. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> what I loved is I, I looked at your image of, um, the Pinta tortoise and yeah. 
it, it, it enabled two things, which is one, I could look at a beautiful image of a tortoise and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And very quickly, I could read a caption that talks about the UN report, explains that a million species are at risk of extinction and puts that into my mental at the forefront of what I'm talking about. But also more importantly, and I think this also happened with Sudan, the last male northern white rhino that passed away this year. Oftentimes we think of extinction as something that's very impossible to actually happen. And if it does, it's to a, a random plant species or a little frog that we've never heard about in the rainforest. Whereas with Sudan, it was like, holy shit, that's a massive rhino. And for years, I never even heard of that. It's a pinta tortoise that was a beautiful tortoise in the Galapagos, which is one of the world's most unspoiled places that also went extinct in what, the last 10 years or something to that extent? 2005, yeah. is that what it was? Um, yeah, but, but even it, still, yeah, like it just it communicates that message in a very powerful way. Yeah, I think I think that you know the image of George there, lonely George, is like it's tangible, like like the rhino. You know, you can you can say put a really big mark on it and say extent. I mean, it is huge. Yeah, it's, it's like a dinosaurs. I mean, yeah. they. I mean, George was, I think. 103 years old i mean it's just and and it's yeah. gone yeah it's forever sad. and so it's it's really it's really sad but i think i have great hopes mm -hmm. in the sense in the sense that um humans are really intelligent being uh and i mean we've gone to the moon, right? We're going to right. Mars. And so we have the brain power to flip the things. And I think it's just a question of will. Mm -hmm. You know, I, we, we come to the point where it's not, I think it's not enough for the individual to, you know, pay attention of, you know, plastic use, pay attention to this and that, you know, eat less meat. Now is time that government steps in and say, okay, no plastic allowed anymore. That's it. You know, it's right. no sustainable. We have to cut it. And so that even the non-educated person that goes to the grocery store and have no clue whatsoever what plastic does and has no clue what is the difference be between biodegradable and 200 years to be degradable, mm -hmm. has, has no choice to just do take whatever is available and... Plastic's not available, so it's not it's not a problem, right? Because you know we are. I mean, in, in the Western culture, we're privileged. We have access to education, but a lot of third countries or developing countries they, they don't. Mm -hmm. they, they have no clue what's going on. They have plastic, whatever. This water is clean. I'm gonna drink it from the bottle. They, and they totally don't think about the consequences because they have other things to think about, which right. is survival, which we are so in a comfortable situation. We have computers, we have everything we need and we're health, uh, wealth and health. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so these people, you know, they, they, they don't have choices. So we do, and so I think it's our duty to do things in a way that, that these people can just, you know, follow. And, I mean, education, I think education would be the best. I mean, I think if we are where we are, uh, it's because lack of education. Uh, but um, I think we're getting there, and especially the big hope is with all these new uh, youth 
movements like Greta in Sweden and in, in the Scandinavian countries, and now all over the world, all these young people, you know, going on strike and say, hey, this is our future and we need to act now. Mm-hmm. And that's a great hope. That's, that's really give me a lot of hope. Yeah, and it is something where if it is implemented, like you said, at the government policy level, it's something yeah. that there's nothing that businesses understand more than economic value. And if all of a sudden you can't put plastic into supermarkets or something like that, which a lot of people have, I mean, there are supermarkets that are doing that now and not doing any plastics is a possible solution to have. All of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, we need to figure this out now. And also it's a huge economic opportunity to be the first person to actually go in there and figure out what that solution for plastics is. And I think we sometimes do ourselves a disservice if we just say that's how it is and too many businesses need plastic to survive. It's like, you're telling me that we can create artificial intelligence in the next 10 years, but we can't find a way to make plastic a little bit more biodegradable. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, yeah. So anyway, yeah, sorry, go ahead. It, it, no, go ahead. I was just going to say to spin it in a more positive light. Let's go back to Antarctica. I'm re- what I'm really interested in is, is, when you get off the boat, you're in, you're entered into this world within our own world. What is the vastness like? Is there a way to like kind of give a sense as to like how big and scoping it is? And also, there's sometimes you see these photos of colonies of penguins that are like a million strong. What is the density of wildlife? How frequently can you see something like that? I, just a little bit more context because so few people have been there. It'd be so interesting to hear about. Well, Subantarctic Island, uh, uh, like South Georgia, that's where you have the highest concentration of wildlife mm-hmm. in the world. I mean, you, you disembark on islands. Uh, South Georgia, is, you can hardly walk sometimes. You really have to find your way uh, among elephant seals and penguins. And it's just overwhelming. And one of the reasons why I really love these places is because they so it's been protected by the Antarctic Treaty for many many years now, and so exploitation of the resources like you know elephant seals, blubber, whaling, mm-hmm. and stuff like that ended long ago now. And it seems it looks like uh, animals are forgot about it, and they're totally not scared about humans. So. If you go in November, like in South Georgia, and you sit down at the same level of an elephant seal pub, which by November is roughly a month old, uh, it's been weaned, so mama is no longer around. The only thing he wants to do is play with you, like (laughs) literally play with you. So where else in the world you find a wild animal wants to play with a human? Usually, Snow White. It, there's no way. Galapagos, maybe. Yeah. Galapagos is the only is the only place that I can really maybe compare to Antarctica, and and it's so unique and so incredible. I mean, you're there, and of course, you're not allowed to touch, right? Mm-hmm. But they can touch you. You know, we have a rule: you cannot. Uh, I had a rule says you cannot approach more than five meters. So, no problem. You sit down. And just wait, they come to you. They, they, <laughs> they, they don't know the rules. They like to break the rules. And here you are, you have them like laying on your lap and just looking at you like that. And it's just priceless. 
is just really something that nowhere else in the world can happen. It's and amazing, yeah. And it's so precious. And, you know, there is and there is a lot of controversy about these close encounters, especially with elephant seal pups. You know, mm-hmm. IADO, which is the, the organization that um, um, regulates tourism in Antarctica, is kind of skeptical about these close encounters. But I'm, I'm really, um, and I hope they're not going to forbid that uh, to happen, you know, them because now they're talking maybe they you know if if an animal approach you you have to step back and i hope they never do that because it's really you're not putting in danger on the animals you're not touching so you're not getting them used to you by the way they don't have any humans down there that can harm them there is no hunt there is no nothing so it's not a question of getting them used to humans right. so that they are in danger and and they're totally harmless they they, you know, they just want to play. And and I think it's what you can take from that experience back to our civilization is an amazing experience that will actually allow you to be ambassador for these places mm-hmm. better because you talk about it in such an enthusiastic way that needs to be protected. There is no way around it. You need to protect that because it's the only place on earth that, that can happen. Mm-hmm. So, so if, and, and it's controversy, you know, uh, traveling to Antarctica, because of course you have a carbon footprint impact and it's, you know, the ship burned carbon fuel. So, right. and quite often, you know, you put yourself in the situation like questioning, okay, do I do good or not? And at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm kind of my conscience is okay because I, well, first of all, I produce images that I'm going to be put in, to work and shared uh, not only with the public but with uh, organizations uh, that fight for the uh, well-being of these uh, places. They've been used to uh, raise money for charities for this mm-hmm. organization. And also for me, it's most important through photography. I really, my goal is to uh, create more ambassador for this environment. And there is nothing better than an ambassador out, out there. The more ambassador there is out there, the better, because they can spread their feeling, they can spread the passion, they can spread the concerns. And that's the only the, the thing that I think it's really good. Just the more we know about these places, the more we know about the experiences we can have, and the better it is for for protecting these environments. Yeah, I agree entirely. <laughs> and I also think one of my favorite conversations I've had on this podcast is with Carl Safina, who wrote What Animals Think and Feel. And I think those types of encounters with things like elephant seals, it humanizes animals in the sense that people understand i think it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that animals live lives that are worth living and that oftentimes people almost think of them as like computers or machines that are just like doing like habitual Mm -hmm. habits that it's like a frog ribbits and he's just on repeat and that's just like what he does until he dies and like an ant goes and it builds its colony until it dies and it's just like almost like a a repeated cycle that doesn't have a level of emotion or intelligence and i think when you look at those elephant seals that are coming and they want to play with you and then they're they do have those 
when they grow, they become these massive three ton animals that have intense fights over females and they have kids that they wean and, and grow up with and they rub each other like, like they live in such like close communities and stay together for warmth. There's, there's just so many, no matter what species you talk about, when you get on a very detailed level, you understand a few things. And obviously there's exceptions to the rule, but that they have lives that are worth living, that they have emotional capacities, that they understand what's going on, that they do have an interaction with each other and with the, the natural environment. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. And that's why I, I totally agree that something like that elephant seal, you look at that and it's like, especially the adults, like they're kind of scary looking animals. <laughs> and then you, yeah. you, you can see I that. I wouldn't want to play with them. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'm going to, I'll leave those ones to play with themselves. But like when the little babies come up to you, you're like, oh my God, that's like a little toddler. That's a three to five year old human. Who's like excited to learn about the world, to see the world, to experience the world. Yeah. And you understand that exploiting something like that should have the emotional repercussions or like the consciousness of, of exploiting a three to five year old human. I'm not like, obviously there's like nuances and things like that i'm not saying that they it, it's a difficult situation but it, it, it's valuable and i think people sometimes are just like yeah whatever yeah that's true and also i would say things are changing i think that younger generation and our generation as well mm -hmm. it's like more yeah they have feelings right but i remember my dad i would say no animals do not have feelings right what are you talking about dad <laughs> I mean, are you kidding me? No, it's just instinct. They do it by instinct. And then, you know, I come home with images of polar bear cuddling and playing with the cubs. And I say, okay, is this instinct? To me, that seems like super motherhood behavior and mm -hmm. protection. And there is absolutely feelings in there. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, um, and sometimes, you know, um, that, that's why I really believe in, in the positive influence of nice, positive images, mm -hmm. because it really, you can really show the feelings. I mean, it's challenging to, to capture the, if you want, the, the personality of every single animal. But if you spend enough time, you're going to get it. And, and that's why you, it's important photography, because you're going to take that feeling into someone else's home and made them realize that hey they they are they are living creatures with feelings so mm -hmm. we should respect them as we respect our own and i think one thing i really learned uh, going to antarctica and and being immersed in nature without any distraction is that you come to realize that we are the biodiversity it's it's the oneness if you want the universe is a oneness mm -hmm. there is no humans there is no ants there is no no bears as individual we're all interconnected so if the bears have a problem well guess what we have a problem because mm -hmm. that means that their habitat is melting is something happening well all in all the world that's going to repercussion all over the walls and at the end on us because if if the ice is melting, the currents of the sea are gonna change. The currents of the winds are gonna change. Now you have part of the our planet that is warming up, part that are cooling down, right? Mm -hmm. As well, 
and and that is drought and and uh, floods and that has repercussion on our food chain right. right but people needs to be taught about it you know we have to teach them that is all cycle that if they're in problem they have problem we have problem so it's not about really it's not about the bears it's about saving us yeah the right <laughs> but i really think when that click into the mainstream then things gonna change yeah and it's almost because of what we've been able to de develop as the human species we've almost built a larger layer of armor between us and the natural world and you can start to see that the species who don't have the smallest armor and the most susceptible they're starting to get crushed and i think even outside of bears and stuff when you look at how drastically the smallest of the insect populations have gotten destroyed and then right after that you think of the next susceptibles they often say amphibians or like the canaries of the coal mine like amphibians are getting crushed it's like the the more susceptible at the bottom tra uh, tranches of the food chain are just getting destroyed and then slowly and slowly that starts going up to the people who have more and more protections like the larger predators um, yep. And then eventually will be us, but yep. acting like there's not the connection that it's coming up and cut and like going to eventually reach us. Um, yep. it, it's just not true. I think that's a really good point. It's a oneness yep. and it's like a, we're all in this together type vibe versus yeah. us versus it, them. Yeah. And the thing is that the little creatures that are disappearing more than anything else, they're actually the basement if we don't have basement, the house gonna fall sooner or later, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. So we are just destroying our basement, our foundation, and then when the foundation are gone, well, good luck, man. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And and it, you know, I think that as humans, we always thought we are superior of any other species, and we we kind of you know don't think that you know we, we can do it without hands, we can do it without insect, we can do it without. But they, if they are existing, there is a reason why. Mm -hmm. And we're going to find out at our expenses that, yeah, that was the reason that everything is interconnected. And if you start taking away, you know, solid foundation here and there, then at the end, everything is going to collapse. And at the end, another thing that probably humans do not realize is that, you know, it, we can destroy nature that at the end is going to destroy human species, but nature is going to come back. Mm -hmm. It's always come back, you know. That's the strength to rebuild and to adapt and and come back. Humans, I don't know. That's a good point. Yeah. If you could look back on all of your travels, and I know you've been to ph photographing sixty-five some odd countries, based on my research, is there one moment that sticks out as to you're in this incredibly wild place, either photographing something or just experiencing something? that you look back and you're like, I can't believe I get to do the work that I do for a living? You know, I think there isn't uh, a specific episode that I, I sticks to my mind, mm -hmm. but I'm so grateful every time I'm out there and I'm witnessing the most beautiful things that can happen. Uh, I have to pinch myself and say, well, I get to do that. And I'm so privileged. Uh, uh, and of course, it takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of, you know, I, I'm giving up a lot of my private life to do mm -hmm. what I'm doing because I love to do it. 
but you know people do not realize how much effort gets sure. you know they, they always think we are on holiday <laughs> <laughs> and I, i'm not complaining but you have to give up a lot of your life mm-hmm. uh, private life in order you know friends and relationships and these is tough things but how every time i'm out there and i have the privilege to uh, interact with wildlife or simple beautiful landscape like in antarctica or the arctic in svalbard for me, it's just a mission to try to capture the beauty that we have now for future generation mm-hmm. and and trying to wake up people that are living in now and say, hey, you know, we can really do something to protect it because we are slowly going to destroy everything if we go ahead like yeah. that. And so it's, it's, it's a bigger, meaningful project if you want. And, and it's, it's a really enjoying doing it and uh yeah and sharing with the world how many days of the year are you traveling uh roughly some years more and some year less but roughly nine months a year i'm on the road wow yeah yeah that's intense it is intense i'm lucky my husband quite often comes to me oh that's good <laughs> yeah so so that that's good um, is he a photographer I, I as well he's an artist is a watercolor uh, painter and oh, so cool. different medium same goal same love same passions uh good match no competition <laughs> <laughs> not like paul nicklin and christina Mittermeier. they're like yeah. they pretend exactly. they love each other but they're really fierce competitors well i think they sell well together as a team <laughs> oh no i know i'm just kidding I'm just, I'm just obsessed with their works on each individual level uh yeah. if you is there through your travels an animal that has kind of spoken to you that is not like one of the most expected of like obviously polar bears and penguins and seals are kind of these more large mammals that you can understand to love is there like an unexpected animal that sticks out that you've grown to appreciate oh, that's a difficult one <laughs> i have to think about it um i don't know there is like it's it's interesting it's always well i would say penguins and polar bears of course and bears in general but in among the penguin species i get to change my favorite one with the aging and observing them. Like I remember the first time I saw a daily penguin, I was like, hmm, kind of ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and now I love them. Now it's like my favorite one. Like so the more I spend time with them, the more I understand their 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 character and their very distinctive character depending on the species. And I'm like, oh I really like this one. Oh interesting. It's more like, you know, it's it's it really Amazing, and then this one, oh, maybe not. There's plus, <laughs> no, <laughs> boring. <laughs> but um, um, you know, I'm so connected with the polar region and the bears that uh, yeah, probably it's difficult. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like the answer is polar bears. Is it, the polar bear is that like your your number one? The polar bears and the emperor penguin. Okay. I'd say they're at the same level. And I don't get to see the, the emperor. Uh, I've just seen once in 2006. Uh, but I, I, I love, my, my biggest dream is actually to overwinter in Antarctica 
and uh, and stay with the emperors for the whole winter. The emperor that, penguins are the the ones from March of the Penguins, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be my my greatest dream. But it, it takes a full year of your life to if you want to do it. So it's kind of a bit too much. Yeah. Well, I also I love the. I think it's the opening line of March of the Penguins where Morgan Freeman kind of says something to the extent of over millions of years, uh, species after species has have evolved to leave Antarctica. And there's really only one species that kind of stayed here on the land and stuck it out. And like that life, is that's a tough life. And I think, yeah. it, I mean, the perseverance yeah. of the emperor penguin is something that I think everybody could take a little bit of a, yeah. a, a life lesson from. Those things are amazing. They they are extremely incredible. I mean, the fact that they, you know, they they have totally different uh, reproduction cycle compared to the other penguin. They actually breed in the winter, and minus ninety Celsius. Ugh. I mean, this is just how how can someone survive right and so it's just uh, they're just amazing yeah just just those two species the polar bears and and the emperor penguin are totally my favorite absolutely what what about the polar bear specifically is there something about that type of bear or that animal that really speaks to you um it's so i i i photograph polar bears uh, quite a lot in wapus national park which mm-hmm. is the southernmost standing area in the world in Manitoba, Canada. And I just, I'm just impressed of how they are um, so tender with the cups. Yeah. They're amazing mothers. I mean, they are just, I mean, they have these two little cups and they bite their ears and nose and they climb and play and the poor mom wants to sleep and they're, they but and she doesn't do anything. She just you know she it's just the patience they have. It's just unbelievable. And the fact that they have you know to face temperature. I mean when they come out of the den is like minus forty minus fifty Celsius. So extremely cold. Yeah. And they just take care of this little thing and and they go with their lives. It's just amazing how they live. I mean again you know, a lot of yeah. I love that. Um, If you could recommend uh, to listeners your favorite book and documentary that are kind of based in the wildlife world, are there anything that jump up to the forefront? (laughs) Based on that reaction, I don't know. For listeners, the squint on Daisy's face or like the the pain that question just caused is very uh, prominent. It's so broad as far as documentaries goes. Unfortunately, I, I don't have much time to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so books have kind of really put me in the spot there. No, me but too. I, I say that to, I need to stop asking that question because I, I almost get the same reaction every time and I don't read very much either. So I'm, I'm always which, like... Which I'm really ashamed of. I know, like, me too. But, but yeah. I'd rather watch uh, our planet on Netflix. For sure, I just... I just watched the the last um, BBC Dynasties on Emperor oh, Penguin, yeah. and it was just amazing. I just see that's my dream. 
that's what I want to do, to spend the full year with the emperors and see the whole cycle, be able to, you know, they filmed it under the southern lights. I mean, that's something really, is yeah. really high up on my my dreams, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I think Dynasty, if you just go online and just watch Dynasties, because BBC did a really amazing job, yeah. How about uh, conservation groups? Are there any that you feel like deserve more time and attention and money than kind of they get there? I due? think that uh, so I'm 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 in various groups. I I collaborate with many different groups. I'm um, Antarctic ambassador for Greenpeace. I collaborate with the uh, Wild Fund. Um, I do well. I'm in the Sea Legacy team, the collective. Uh, I'm a member of the International League of Conservation Photographers, and I think all of them do a great job. So I really would feel unfair to, you know, promote one towards the other better. I think that in their specialties and in how they reach the audiences, they're all different, and we need them all. So just, you know, if you want to support, support the one that is dearest to you or pick the cause, I don't know, sea legacies, more for the seas and, you know, like WWF is a huge institution, has different projects. So it's really about just supporting them. And, and I really don't feel fair to, you know, promote one towards the other because they all do a great job in different fields. So. So you just, I think you have to feel it from your heart and feel it like, okay, which is the cause that I really want to support the most and it's more dear to me or closer to me. And, you know, even if it's a small organization close to your home that, you know, just clean up the beach where you live, it, whatever it is, everything is important. Even if it's a small one, doesn't matter if it's the world most recognized in the world, just the most important thing I think is being involved, uh, if possible, actively involved so that, you know, you, you feel like you're actually doing something positive and, you know, it's not about, well, of course it helps giving money, but if you can go, and actually help maybe cleaning that beach and make a community out of it, then, you know, it's about communities, about people getting engaged. And we need the most people be engaged in this huge battle, which is, you know, saving our planet right now. Agreed. And I think that's a great answer. I will link to those organizations that you mentioned in the show notes, but I, I think that's the perfect answer. How about the next five years? Any, when you look at, what you'd like to accomplish being with the emperor penguins might be the answer, but is there anything that is like your main guiding light or big goal that you're trying to accomplish over the next five years? You know, I have been uh, traveling the polar region for the last 22 years. And I think I will continue as long as my legs will support me to uh, continue documenting this region. And hopefully, you know, the trend that I've been witnessing in the last 22 years, which is direct witness, you know, like literally seeing the ice cap melting and, and just reversing tons of tons of new 
rivers coming down to ice caps and seeing starving polar bears and seeing the change of species that are actually inhabiting uh, the peninsula. Uh, we'll get back to normal if you want. And, and uh, I hope that my images will reflect that, the changement. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's going to happen because more and more masses are moving towards that. And, and I think at the end, our government will just have to face it and say, OK, we have that's what pe people want, because if people really push enough, we can make it happen and make push our government to, to the change. So uh, it's it's extremely important. I'm, I'm, I really don't like politics, but it's really important that when election comes up, everybody goes to vote and vote consciously based on their beliefs and especially thinking about about you know um, our protection of our habitat. And I really another thing that you know um, click into my mind is just like if we can because um, everything comes down to money at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. So if there is money, people's gonna invest. So I think if we can, switch around and say, well, it, you know, protecting our environment also means profit. We can make profit out of it. Then I think more companies going to invest in green energy and it's going to be easy because as much money we can do with fossil fuel, we can do it with green energy. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of investing the right amount of money and and it's just it's a switch. So right. it's just a transition from one one asset to the other asset. And I think people are just company are just care to do the, the jump. But because now there is so many people pushing and you know all this gathering of people protesting, maybe mm -hmm. we are ready for the change. And that's that's my hope. I, mean, yes. I like to think that way. At least. No, I think I think you're right. I, I I have the same hope, but I think at the same time there are governments that are pushing to do that. And I think even more importantly that the consumers and the general public really are showing that green initiatives within corporations resonate with them as consumers and all of a sudden, like you said, the economic value of doing something like that. And when people have that similar mindset and that similar um, sentiment and, and expectation from companies, all of a sudden the economic ne necessity to actually enact on green initiatives is is no longer, oh yeah, it's the right thing to do. It's the right business move to make too. And oftentimes whether you like it or not, that's what ultimately ends up making the change. So I think from both a government policy and an economic side, I, I feel like the tide is shifting and that's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting. And also, you know, it's like, and we see here in Canada was just uh, watching the news the other day, like this big company, uh, meat company, right? Mm -hmm. And now they're investing now really billions in, in the, they not call themselves meat companies anymore, but protein companies, right? So they produce protein from plants, of course, and and they're actually going to, you know, stock exchange market right now, and and there is a market. So if you know, if we can really go on that direction, switching into 
more sustainable but profitable uh, solution, then then the switch is going to be easy. I love that. Yeah. And yeah. my my last question for you is probably my hardest, which is if you were to go to a major highway and put up a billboard on the side of the road that disseminates one message in 10 words or less, what would you put on that billboard? I would say become nature ambassadors. I love that. Yeah, just because I think really education is at the base of everything. We need to educate and the more educated, the more ambassador we have out there, the better it is. Well, Daisy, thank you so much. I'm going to link to all your website, social channels for people listening. Check out the show notes. Please follow Daisy. I'm a huge fan. And especially after this conversation, I'm a bigger fan. I feel juiced up and like <laughs> ready to roll. Um, but please, uh, just for me, like, thank you so much for all the work that you do. It's incredibly inspiring and super important. And thank you everybody for listening, uh, as always. And until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc. Please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.